I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Rosie is sniffing at the track. She's kind of sniffing around like, yeah, there's definitely something interesting here. I'll sniff around a little bit. Is it here? No, it's not there. It's, yeah, ah, yes, found it, yeah. And then once she's located the spot, she will squat and wee on it. What are the qualities that she's searching for in this patch of track that mean it's the ideal place for a uh, fluorescent yellow wee-wee. <laughs> Is it a place that she can smell the presence of one of her enemies, the, one of the naughty squirrels or the silly rabbits, and so she wheezes on it out of contempt? Or is it that she likes the spot but thinks the one thing that's missing is some lurid yellow dog wee? It's impossible to tell, isn't it, Rosie? Mystery dog, I love you. Come on. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? It's Adam Buxton here. I and my dog friend Rosie are walking along our regular farm track out here in East Anglia, UK, towards the end of October 2023. It's cold, colder than it has been for a few weeks, nearly glove time, but it's very bright, the sun is out. And it is a welcome change from the weather we've had the last few days. The news, of course, is dominated by events in the Middle East and Ukraine. But also reports about the ongoing flooding after Storm Babette. Did you see the video taken by a dog walker in Scotland of a section of the forest floor peeling away from the earth beneath and then flapping slowly up and down as the wind catches the trees sitting on top. I guess the roots of the trees spread out rather than go down. But it looks mad. It looks like a big kind of mechanical, practical special effect for a film or at a theme park or something. I put a link in the description. It's worth seeing to give you an idea of the ferocity of the wind. And of course there's been terrible flooding across the country. I hope you weren't too badly affected, wherever you are. We got quite badly waterlogged out here. That's a puddle. But down in the lower fields it's quite flooded still. It's Sunday as I speak. On Friday, when the storm really hit, I was supposed to travel to Sheffield for a bug show, but my train was cancelled. So I got in the car, started heading towards Sheffield, but after an hour, I had only travelled a few miles. I was stuck. All the roads were waterlogged. HGVs were getting stuck in the narrower roads and blocking the routes. You had to keep turning around and trying to find alternate routes. The sat-nav rerouting to another road that would be blocked. 
was checking the news and it started saying, don't travel. So very reluctantly, I made my way back to the castle and we had to cancel that Sheffield show. So I'm very sorry if you're one of the people who was supposed to come that night and maybe some of you actually turned up at the showroom cinema not realising that the show had been cancelled. I'm very sorry if that was the case. I hope you'll be able to make it to the rescheduled performance, which is next Friday, the 27th of October, at the same time, 7.30pm. But right now, I'm a bit husky today. Don't know why. I've been doing some singing. I was doing some yelping last night trying to record something and then again this morning so maybe that's it anyway let me tell you about podcast number 209 which features a rambling conversation with the english stand-up comedian actor and writer and returning guest bridget christie christie facts born in 1971 bridget grew up in gloucestershire down in the southwest of england where she attended saint peter's roman catholic high school In her early 20s, Bridget earned a scholarship to study at the Academy of Live and Recorded Arts in South London. Her stand-up career got going in the early 2000s, around the time that she was also earning a living, by working on the diary column of the Daily Mail newspaper, a time she later talked about in her stand-up show, My Daily Mail Hell. That was in 2009, that show. Bridget has written and performed 13 solo live shows over the years, which also include An Ungrateful Woman, Housewife Surrealist, The Court of King Charles II, her Brexit-themed Because You Demanded It, and A Bick for Her, a show inspired by her consternation that Bick, the pen manufacturers, appeared to think that it was necessary to create a special woman pen. That show was a great success and spawned a book called A Book For Her. And there was also a stand-up special for Netflix in 2022 called Stand Up For Her. As I speak, Bridget is right in the middle of a UK tour with her show Who Am I? That runs up until the middle of December of this year, 2023. The blurb on Bridget's website says, The 50-year-old Foster's award-winning comedian cannot ride the motorbike she bought to combat her midlife crisis because of early osteoarthritis in her hips and RSI in her wrist and wonders why there are so many films made by men about young women discovering their sexuality but none about middle-aged women forgetting theirs. It's a menopause laugh a minute with a confused, furious, sweaty woman who is annoyed by everything. I recommend catching that if you can. It was good fun. There's a link in the description of today's podcast to all the remaining dates on Bridget's website. In addition to numerous appearances on shows like Have I Got News For You, Alan Davis as yet untitled and, of course, The Taskmaster, Bridget has made several series for radio. Her most recent... Mortal was recorded during the 2021 lockdown and was a lovingly produced textured audio landscape that featured funny, profound and stupid thoughts about the meaning of life and death. Today's conversation with Bridget was recorded face-to-face in London on a hot day back in May of this year and we spoke about Bridget's TV comedy drama The Change 
in which Bridget plays a woman, a woman going through a midlife crisis. Dusting off her old Triumph motorbike that she hasn't ridden in 30 years, Linda sets off alone to the spectacular wilderness of the Forest of Dean in search of an identity, a purpose and a tree she climbed as a child. That's the premise of the show, which is filled with great performances from Bridget herself, as well as a cast that includes Omid Jalili, Lisa Tarbuck, Susan Lynch, Paul Whitehouse, Tanya Moody and Jerome Flynn of Robson and Jerome. And it's beautifully directed by Al Campbell. You might know Al as Barry Shitpeas from Charlie Brooker's Various Wipes. Bridget and I also talked about smelly fridges. We talked quite a lot about cleaning. Bridget was scandalised by my unorthodox mopping technique and disturbed by my toilet cleaning habits. You might be as well. We also talked about giving yourself a hard time as a parent. But we began by literally sniffing each other out. Back at the end for a bit more waffle, but right now with Bridget Christie. Here we go. When we embraced earlier on, it wasn't like a really intimate embrace. Where did we embrace? Well, at the door. Did we? No, yeah, we you said had hi. your foot. We didn't. That was not an embrace. Did we not go for an embrace? Uh, shall I tell you something, Adam? Yeah. It was the most awkward greeting because you yeah. had your foot. On the door to stop you the had, door you closing. Had, you had, there's two doors, right? And you had your a back <laughs> foot. You were really splayed. And you had your back foot in the interior door. Yeah. And you were reaching quite far to keep the other door open. Yeah. And then... I was, I was doing was, a lot of work at the same time. There was a lot of air between us, let's say that. Okay. All right. Well, I apologise. I, I, in my mind, I was getting ready for an embrace. And also, I put some aftershave on. What? Which I normally wouldn't wear. Why did you put aftershave on? Because I was going to embrace someone. Oh. What I, is it? I can't smell it. Well, I think it's CKB. <laughs> Sorry. That's... That I haven't worn... Uh, well, that was, that's quite 90s, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> it is. Do you know what I wear? What? Well, this is like an advert for perfume now. But I'm going to tell you, because I put some perfume on as well, because I was going out. Yeah. I wear this thing called Lust from Lush. Holy Moses. Oh, God, it smells so good. Does it? It smells like the 80s. I should smell it now, shouldn't I? Or is that going to be I weird? Shall I come round? Hang on, I'll meet I'll you in come the middle. Round. Oh yeah, okay, you come round. I'll come here. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, it's good, isn't it's it? It's very floral. Oh, is it floral? Yeah, don't you think it smells like a bunch of flowers? Oh, I don't think it's floral. Oh. I, I think it smells a bit like the sort of perfume a man in the eighties who p- like picks wild mushrooms and do you remember those men who had like leather necklaces and lovely men with open shirts picking mushrooms. They're going to go home and make a lovely risotto. Uh, Not a risotto, no. What are they going to do with the mushrooms? 
Oh no, they'd like would drink them or you know magic mushrooms. Oh, they? sort of these are these are kind of spiritual hippie men. Yes, like um, like a patchouli. I think it smells a bit sort of patchouliish. So to refer to your TV show, this is a good segue. The man that you are describing, who smells nice, <laughs> who is picking mushrooms for a spiritual journey in the woods later on. Reminds me of the character in your show, in The Change, played by Jerome <laughs> from Robson and Jerome, who lives in a cave. Is that the guy? No, it, well, I had not thought of him at all. Oh, okay. I was thinking about some of the biker gang that I used to hang around with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I took a sip of tea there. At exact, because that was the thing when you were last on the podcast, a few years back, mm. we were talking in front of a small rainy audience it was at the pouring down end of the road festival and you suddenly revealed to me that you were part of this biker gang which was something i did not know about you at that point now it seems like well that's your whole identity in the show in the change that's the person you are being right yeah linda yeah and did i establish how you got involved in that world it was just um you know going to the pub and meeting bikers it's as simple as that really and then you know getting fragrant bikers <laughs> yeah and then just getting my license and then you know playing pool and that sort of thing what kind of you music know? were you listening to you did tell oh, me oh you know leonard skinnerd credence you know That's led zeppelin right. black sabbath all that sort of thing yeah 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 janis joplin sure good soulful rock yeah and do you mind me asking how old you are now? I'm 52 in August, so 51 now. There you go. So we're not too far apart in age. I'm a little bit older than you. God, you don't look older than me. That's nice of you to say. I feel old And at you the don't moment. seem it. You have a very young, you know, outlook. All right, good. Perspective. I think people do look younger if they're kind of nice <laughs> and happy. <laughs> no, but you know, you know... Well, may I... May I return the compliment in a way that might sound forced, but I swear is true. I was thinking earlier on, like, wow, do you dye your hair? My hair? Yeah. No, I mean, I've got a few low lights, but... Yeah, you're looking very young. <laughs> is this good, listening, listeners, us just telling each other how young we look? She it's does not, look very probably... <laughs> young, though. Skin is beautiful, hair luxuriant. Yeah. No, you're looking very youthful, whatever you're doing. It's running every day. Agreeing with you. Are you well, running thank you. every day? I love running every day. If I don't, I feel like I'm going a little bit crazy. Right. How long have you been running? Since before lockdown. So then, but really, really, well, my whole life. So I started running when I was about 15. And that's just the thing that I like. I think you've got to find one thing that you like and that's it. What are you running from? <laughs> <laughs> or towards. Yeah. What am I running towards? It's, and I don't listen to anything, so I... Do you not? No, I, I, I used to, and then I thought, oh, now I'm thinking about that and that, and this is reminding me of this. So I just clear my mind now. Hmm. And have you injured yourself running? Because I, I tried to do some running at a certain point, but I very quickly found that my feet were in trouble. What do you mean? Uh, maybe I wasn't running with the right shoes or something. And then a friend of mine said, oh, no, you're too heavy to run. What? <laughs> what kind of a friend is that? You're too heavy for that. Oh, no, he, he meant it nicely. I think he was saying, maybe you're going too hard. You've got to wait. And I mean, there's a whole science to it. Did you just start running? What, when I was 15? 
Oh, right. So you started really young. Like you... I'm a run- yeah, I, but much younger than that. So when I was young, young, I mean, when I was three, three, four, five, I used to walk. Yeah. I would walk a long way. We would go to hills and, you know, there was nine of us and... Nine? We would go, yeah. I'm, In yeah, your family? Yeah, I'm the ninth child. What? <laughs> Did you not know that? No way. Yeah, so we'd go for walks on a Sunday. Up this to... was in Victorian times. <laughs> yes, I'm that old. <laughs> um, Nine? Yeah, the wow. ni- I'm the ninth. So, And we would go for walks from our house where we lived in Gloucester. Mm. And we would walk up to Robinswood Hill, which is a hill. So that would be like a 21-minute walk. And then we'd walk up and down. But I would walk the whole way. I wouldn't need my pram or anything like that. And then I was quite sporty. I loved swimming and... And I was just one of those people who, if I saw a field or an open space, I would just have to run through it. You know, there would just be this urge to, sure. to run. Your hair flowing. Yeah. The sun behind you. All that kind of thing, yeah. you know, um, tripping up. But yeah, I, I would just feel compelled to run. We've got a running machine. Oh, I hate them. Running on a machine, I can't. I used to be able to do that, but it's just soulless for me. I like being feeling the wind on me. And yeah, absolutely. Well, it's good though. In it's good in the winter time. We've got a screen on it. There's a screen. What do you mean a screen? Oh, to watch things. You watch people running. <laughs> <laughs> they they start running and then you follow them. Is that interesting? Yeah, it's pretty good. Because because maybe they're running in Ecuador or something like that. Oh, and then you've got all those scenes. Yeah, you're running. Suddenly, you're running through Dubrovnik. I don't know. I, I'm pleased that you're doing something. <coughs> but <laughs> to tie up the original thread. Oh yes. Of smells. Of smells. You smell like a beautiful man collecting mushrooms from the eighties, <laughs> and uh, and it's called lust. Yeah. Were you embarrassed buying a scent called lust? Well, it's a bit of a silly name, isn't it? I would say, yeah. Yeah, but the smell's too good. I, I don't know what to say. I just, I couldn't not buy it because the name was... But every time I wear it, which is, you know, to gigs, comedians say, what is that smell? Well, people who smell nice, it's really a wonderful surprise because yeah. most people don't bother. I mean, I remember reading a David Sedaris piece, whatever you want to call it, and in passing... He made a reference to the kind of men that wear cologne. And it was a sort of withering oh. dismissal of the kind of man that wears cologne. And I thought, yeah, the kind of men that wear cologne. Oh, me. But I wonder what he meant. What well, kind of a man wears cologne? I don't cologne? know. Well, that's the thing. Like a, a man who's too fussy or too flash or something or too, or is it sleazy? I don't think so. Because obviously the cliche of a certain kind of 70s sleazy man it's like was... like Old Spice yeah, or something. Yeah, splashy all over, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, and, and then be a sexist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A lot of aftershave, because that's the other thing, is that I didn't think of that kind of stuff as cologne. I think of that as aftershave. Americans call it cologne. Yeah. Essentially what it is is perfume, but it's like calling Pepsi Max Pepsi Max because men don't want to drink Diet Coke or whatever. You know what I mean? It's the same. It's a diet soda, but they have to have a manly name for it pepsi max rather than diet pepsi there's a whole marketing thing isn't there with food and like there was that what crisps were for men um i think it was <laughs> those ridged ridged ones cox cox that would be one name you could go with you could call it, yeah what, for crisps sure 
Crispy cocks. I don't know. Yeah, what? well, like the puffed ones. They could be cock-shaped. They, you what get puff like, sh- What's-its, do you mean? Yes, like penis-shaped what's-its. I don't think anyone would eat that. <laughs> well, you get penis pasta, don't you? Penis pasta? Yeah, yeah. but that's from a card shop or something. Sure, you well, can't... that's where you could sell cocks, the crisps. So what's the female equivalent? No, no, no one would, no one would buy cock crisps. This well, is the maddest idea I've ever who, heard. Who's buying penis-shaped pasta? I think it's women on hen party expeditions, isn't it? And what, maybe and they'd they, buy cocks. What, and then they go out and cook up a, a big pot of pasta? I don't know what... I'm not the one who's making it. But yes, that's I, what they do. And then they laugh and laugh. They have some Chianti and they eat the cock pasta and... Very I funny. did buy a tiny box of chocolate penises. There you go. Why from... is that acceptable? No, and I, di- I, I kept them in the bag for ages. <laughs> Why did you buy them? I don't know. They were on the till at, um, what's that card shop that's got all the teddies in it? <laughs> mm, you can't know. <laughs> you know, the, the card I, shop. I do know, but I don't know. And they sell all those cute little... <laughs> 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 That's all this podcast is, is two people of a certain age trying to remember words We've and names. We've got to stop. My God, we haven't talked about anything yet. I'm going to get this. I'm going to pull okay. this together. All right. Oh, man. What? The other day, we had a problem with the fridge. And we'd been away for a little bit. Got back and the fridge had defrosted. Mm. And there wasn't that much in it because we were going away. We, we, we knew that we had to clear it out. But the few items of vegetables that were left in there had gone crazy over the, about you know, just a few weeks. But it was a few weeks worth of crazy mold, long strands no. of mold. Yeah. Wow. It looked like, um, you know, in, I don't know if you watch Stranger Things. Yeah. And when they go into the underneath world. Yeah. It looked like that. It was oh, all just God. nuts. And the I smell. I bet it was smelled terrible. Oh, my God. It was unbelievable there was no meat there so it wasn't it wasn't that but but i didn't know you could get that kind of smell from rotting vegetables just terrible and i cleaned it out so thoroughly and disinfected everything and the smell just will not shift it will go eventually will it yeah i'm worried is it just the fridge that smells yeah oh you'll be all right what do you do for have you ever had that problem i've had yeah i i i but you need to spray the side, the inside of the fridge, the sides of the walls and stuff. Because something like fungus and that, it's got millions of particles I and stuff, hasn't it? I sprayed the living shit out of every <laughs> accessible part of the fridge I and bet. the freezer. Because I know now, having Googled this to death, that the air passes around between the freezer and the main fridge area. So if you, both of them have got to be totally sanitised. Because it's just passing the air around. But it still smells. It still smells. I bet it doesn't. It smells like Satan's gooch.
Hey, congratulations on your show. You've got a TV show, a narrative. Well, I, I still can't believe it. Are we calling it sitcom, comedy, drama? What do we call it's them these days? It's a comedy drama, apparently. Okay. Yeah. I don't quite know what the difference is. Well, it's a tonal it thing. In the yeah. olden days, it used to be if you had a sitcom, you couldn't suddenly lob a sad grenade into it. Um, it's tricky, isn't it? Because something like um, Steptoe and Son, you might think that that was a sitcom, but then there's lots of sadness and drama in that Oh, okay, as yeah, well. fair enough. But, but maybe that's more the situation is tragic. Yeah, there was pathos in there, though. You're right. I never really watched that show. No, but I think it's in the style and tone. You're right. Yeah. I don't think of The Change as a sitcom. Do you th think, think of it as more funny than dramatic or you know, you're not thinking of it in those oh, terms? Oh, God, I hope it's funny. I mean, I've tried to make most things that people say funny. Yeah, okay. So this is not you. <laughs> I don't know if... Because, yeah. like, what's Fleabag, then? Is Fleabag funnier than it is dramatic, or what? What do you I reckon? I don't know, but 50-50, would you say? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. One it's one is helping the other. Something like The Detectorist, which I absolutely love, that has both. That's true. I would be laughing and then cry. Oh, the office, the American office. Yes. Constantly crying and laughing. Yeah. But you would look at that and think it looked like a sitcom. Yeah, but yeah. is it a comedy drama then? I don't. I, I think we've agreed that we don't really know, haven't we? Well, it's not an exact science, is it? No. Where did the whole thing come from? Where did it start? What God, it evolved really over many years. So, so do your pitch. Pretend, uh, <laughs> pretend you're back in. I'm, I'm in <laughs> Channel Four. I'm your commissioning editor. You've come in here. So, what's the show? Uh, this is how commissioning editors talk at Channel Four. So what's this show you want to do, Bridget? Oh, I'm not going to be able to answer that. Oh, <laughs> but okay. I... Well, thanks for coming in. Uh, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> That's so. It's God. Imagine, imagine having. Yeah, that would that would be awful. But we, it, it really did evolve over many years. Yeah. The original idea was slightly different. We did have this central character who was kind of returning and going back. Um, so that. Loss of identity and sense of self was always there right from the beginning. Yes. Also, something that was there right from the beginning was The Forest of Dean, which I've always wanted to write something set there. Um, it's just this magical place. So it's partly magical because, you know, of the, tr of the redwoods and the pine and all of this kind of thing, but also where it is geographically, kind of between England and Wales. It's this little pocket in between the River Severn and the Welsh border and it's very unique and actually foresters say that they're not English or Welsh they're foresters but is it how is it massive like how compared to somewhere like Dartmoor no it's not it's not no it's not a moor it's like um it's a forest <laughs> it's a forest with trees in it yeah and the people are are different as well and hobbits I, I just <laughs> Like Look, I love this place. Yes. So I don't want to... Th th it is a love letter to the Forest of Dean. That's what I, is really important to me as well. It's not a comedy about, you know... Yeah. But it's an eccentric place and it, it, it brings me back and it reminds me of a of a time before, you know, it's, it's just... I'm very romantic about that whole era and that's why the change looks a certain way. Well, it feels like a kind of fantasy world and a fantasy community. 
Yeah, well, it is. It's it's created in my mind from memories of being a child. There. Yes, it's quite dreamlike. Yeah, and and it does look absolutely great. It looks like a movie. It looks like a kind of indie movie. You know. Yeah, well, it was really inspired by uh, the reason I wanted it to look like that is because. In the the 1970s when I went there, so films that I would have been seeing then were like um, The Deer Hunter and Deliverance, which, you know, was a bit later, and, you know, westerns that I used to watch with my dad. And Forrester Dean reminded me of those films because of the landscape. The Forest of Dean never really felt like England to me. It felt really epic and cinematic as a child. Obviously, I was smaller, so everything seemed bigger. Yeah. But I'm bigger now, so everything's really small. But what it was, was it was essentially that. It was trying to get my memories onto the screen. You know, that was, that was a huge part. And sort of making this, the setting, another character almost, yeah. and really selling that. And also, you know, during lockdown, there was, I think we, I became really sort of patriotic about my country, which I felt had been sort of hijacked from me. And I had sort of remembered how how great this country was, because we were all kind of stuck here and couldn't go anywhere. And, you know, all the culture that we have, all the rituals, all the archaeology, you know, all this stuff where it's steeped in history and culture. And I wanted to really showcase that and remind people of how great this country is and that it was okay to be patriotic. Mm. So that was really important to me as well. But for all of that to work, you had to have really at its heart a very ordinary, relatable story. And that's where Linda comes in. Linda is your character. Yeah. And she is married to Omid Jalili's yes. character. And your sister is Lisa Tarbuck. She is. Yeah, so it starts out in a very everyday setting with a you know very ordinary linda is a 50 year old working class mother of two who kind of lost her sense of self over the last sort of 25 30 years easily done mm. doesn't have a a job that is rewarding in any way and so she has an appointment with the doctor because she's having lots of symptoms that she's quite worried about. She's worried she may have dementia, um, things like that. And then she goes to see her doctor and he explains to her it's actually she's in the menopause, mm. but that lots of women find it liberating. For a third of women, it is this debilitating, terrible thing. But for a third of women, um, it isn't. Um, and so, and and that third are they just not experiencing those symptoms, the memory loss, the hot flushes, etc., that are associated? So a third of women have really awful time. A third of women are just okay, and a third of women sail through it. Oh, right. Yeah. So all, all it's kind of like what your baby's going to be like, whether they sleep through the night. It's just a bit of a lottery, is it? Exactly. Yeah. It's a total lot, like childbirth and pregnancy right. and everything, and puberty. I suppose some people don't have as hard a time through puberty as others. Yeah. So he, the doctor, says my wife has found the change in hormones quite liberating, and she hangs off cliffs at weekends. This reminds Linda that she buried a time capsule in a tree when she was a child, when her mum died, with all her favourite things in it. But also, before this, Linda's been keeping a chore ledger. Yeah, <laughs> that really made me laugh. Yeah, like just writing every single thing, every chore that she's done over the last, like, 25 <laughs> years. Like, I think this is going to cause... I hope this is going to cause a lot of problems. <laughs> 
<laughs> when this goes out, the chore lady. It's such a simple idea, right? And to what extent is that based on... Because the, the, these are books that the Omar Jalili character later finds after Linda has taken off, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but this yeah. happens in the first episode. Um, but then he <laughs> finds all the ledgers and he's going through and he's just... <laughs> looking at every single, like down to 40 second tasks. He can't believe that his wife has been dusting the lampshades. He's like, oh, the lampshades get dusted. All these things, which are the bread and butter, all the tiny little jobs that yeah. someone at home has to do. Invisible job that people don't even know you're doing. Yeah, that you don't get any thanks for no. whatsoever. Yeah. And <laughs> she's and written them all down. Yeah, she's written every single one down. So there's ledgers going back. 20 years in the airing cupboard. Yeah. And Including she- having sex with her husband. Yeah. One minute, 20 seconds. <laughs> and he nods. He's like, oh, yeah, not bad. Oh, I'm quite pleased with that. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was a huge, you know, I mean, I have been thinking about this for a really, really long time. And it's it's just something that we haven't sorted out yet, the distribution of household labour. I, yeah, yeah. I really don't think we have. And then during lockdown, there was loads of articles about how we were all still at home and yet women were still doing kind of 60, 70%, the the lion's share. And then get this, is that girls were then doing more than boys and boys were getting more of their coursework and homework done and girls were picking up the slack with the household chores. I found that actually really depressing. Mm. But um, it seems like a really simple thing as well to me. Like, this should be sorted out now. And did you ever do anything like keep a log of how no. much housework you were doing? No, I wish I had. No. That's kind of... That's no, I only thought about I it do. when I wrote the show. Yeah. But it would be interesting. It would be very interesting. Who wrote the journals, the logs out for the show? Because they're quite... Yeah, they're very good. <laughs> yeah. I had to... Because uh, it had to be my handwriting because then there's a little shot of me actually writing it in. So it had to all match oh, yeah. up. Yeah, that was actually, there was a real moment where I was looking down the monitor and Ben Mulden, our DOP, and Al, the director, they'd got such a beautiful shot of the back of the airing cupboard where you could see all the spines of the books and then Omid. And I, it really caught me by surprise. And I, I got a bit emotional about it because I just thought about all the hours and days and weeks that all women, like, over hundreds of years would have spent it just I felt the weight of it you know yeah like this invisible stuff and what a waste because it made me think as well as like whose time is more valuable it feels like to me society thinks that women's time is less valuable still Mm. that's how it feels Mm -hmm. well there's lots of evidence to support that but that's uh yeah, I guess what I was hesitating about was that, that some of these things are so intertwined with all sorts of other things that go to making a relationship work yeah, and arrangements that you come to. And, and they're all being arranged and negotiated within, you know, societal structures, patriarchy, whatever you want to call it. So it's very hard to disentangle one thing from the other, if you know what I mean. And there are women I know as well who claim to like a lot of those routines. Not talking about my wife, obviously. (laughs) She doesn't do anything. She she refuses to do anything and she makes me do all of it. And I'm henpecked. To a degree, I am talking about my wife. She will do the thing of 
just going into a frenzy of cleaning sometimes. Right. And Every now and then. Every to, now and then. Yeah. And I'll say, it's fine. Or I'll do it later or whatever. But in that moment, she can't stop herself. And I feel like, well, what's going on there? I, I feel like I don't want to investigate it too deeply because I'm glad that she's doing it. But on the other hand, I'm thinking about the kind of thing you're talking about. Like, why does she feel she needs to do that? Why does she feel no one else will do it if she doesn't? That is interesting. Or will it be done properly? Will it be done properly? That's the yeah. Thing. If it matters to you or if it matters to me, say, you know, if I don't want to live in a dirty house, then I shouldn't have to. And mm. we should see that's why it's difficult because we all have different levels of acceptability. Mm. With what's clean and... You know what I mean? If women just <laughs> could relax a little bit and just not worry so much about everything being so clean and folded, then they could save themselves a lot of time. Something, something well, to think I, about. I don't fold things. I just shove everything. My wife's technique I... now is to, is to roll everything, roll oh. the clothes. Because she was the one that showed me back in the day when we first started having a relationship how to fold clothes. She was like, you don't fold your clothes. <laughs> and so she showed me how to fold a T-shirt the way that they do if you work in a clothes shop right. or in the Gap or whatever. Sis, I think you're an anomaly. So you do, mo you do most things around the house? No, she, I, I would say she does most things. But I, I certainly contribute. And she would tell you. If she was here, she would not. I don't think she would be complaining. Okay. Now, here's the thing. This is what I, would, what I want to talk to you about. And yeah. I'm not, but it's just the language that you used is interesting. Absolutely. Interrogate, you push away. <laughs> this is a safe, you know, I love you, right? Absolutely. You lay it on the line. It was, but I contribute. Yeah. So here's the, I think there's a general feeling that it is, the default is that it is our responsibility. And that any help that the kids or you guys do is helping up, like it's a it's a bonus. Yes, I hear what you're saying. That's what need that's wrong. Yeah. Why do I say well, I will say this. We used to have a cleaner. Right. So that is a big part of the puzzle. So when we had a cleaner, it was a much fairer distribution. Any other tasks that needed doing were 100% fairly shared out between us. Yeah. Then we didn't have a cleaner. Yeah. And like in, in lockdown? Yeah. Yeah. And then for various reasons, we haven't had one since. That's when things started getting skewed. Were you both working from home then? Yeah, we both work from home. So my technique <laughs> is to do things as and when. Like if things start getting too messy, I'll do a big... You do a big, big splurge. Big splurge and I'll yeah. sweep and I'll, I'll, I've got quite an eccentric mopping technique, which is more or less just to flood the whole area and then... Yeah, why don't you, go, why don't you ring it out? <laughs> why, why, I'm sorry, this sounds really sexist, right? But why, why do, <laughs> I don't want to say why do men... Would you do the same if you're wiping down the table? You put the cloth under the tap and make it all soaking wet and then just slosh it onto the table? And Or would you wring the cloth out? First one. You would slosh a slosh. soaking wet... Yeah. If I had my way, my fantasy kitchen scenario would be <laughs> to have some kind of hose with a spray, like a shower, basically, in the kitchen. And I would just shower everything down and then I would dry it. As if the whole thing was, was... Where does all the water go? Onto the floor? Mm-hmm. 
And then, so would you be blowing all the debris and crumbs and stuff like that? Where would you be blowing? No, you sweep that up first. Sweep up the crumbs first and then you soak everything if you're me. And then this is the controversial part of the process, right? Or or maybe more controversial part of the process that I'll probably get cancelled for, for some reason I haven't yet considered. I go and I get a towel out of the laundry room a dirty towel that's about to be washed, right? And I'll throw it on the ground and I will shuffle around on the towel, soaking up all the water on the floor. So this is what you do. You get all the crumbs and the debris off the kitchen table or island, whatever you've got. Mm -hmm. Brush them all off. Brush them onto the floor. Yep. Not into your hand and then into the bin. No, brush them all onto the floor and then do a pass with the dustpan and brush. Okay, you get it all up off the floor. Yeah, yeah. Put that in the bin. Mm-hmm. Get the mop. Get the mop and the bucket. Just chuck water on Half fill the bucket with hot water and some... Some You know, like floor cleaning stuff, lemon pine fresh. Lemon pine fresh. Put the mop in, but don't wring it out. Yeah. So you're just sloshing all the water sloshing all over all the floor. Sloshing all the water all over the floor. And rubbing it in like you're, you're getting your back into oh, it. Oh, yeah, getting yeah. It, Scrub away. All the coffee stains. All the stains, all the skids, all the pee mash. And there's water everywhere. Water everywhere. Then to put the mop back in the bucket, yeah. go and get a towel from the dirty linen basket. Yeah. And then like throw sh- that on the floor. Shuffle about. Shuffle about on it. And so the towel gets absolutely filthy. filthy. It's not good for the towel. You know. The problems with this system, right? No. Well, I'm not telling you to change your system. Yeah. If you were to wring the mop out, you wouldn't have to get, use the towel and get the towel. Listen, I regret saying listen. Immediately the, after I'd said listen like that, I, I felt sad. <laughs> <laughs> I, felt like, I felt like Alistair Campbell on Newsnight. <laughs> Jordan Peterson. Yeah. I've gone on Jordan Peterson's podcast. Tony Blair. Listen. Um, listen. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you about mopping. Um, <laughs> I've got one more question. Has anyone seen you doing this? No. 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 I, don't, I don't want anyone to see. I do it when everyone's out. Okay. So you, you, you feel like I, you've won. You've... I feel pretty good. I put music on. Okay. Yeah. And... What I was going to say is that the reason that the technique came around in the first place was that I thought, what is the point of squeezing out the mop when basically all I'm doing is putting dirty water back on the floor? Do you know what I mean? Like soaking up the water with the mop is just kind of spreading out a thin film of filth all over the floor. But what you're saying, Adam Buxton, Mm -hmm. is that... This mop that was invented a few hundred years ago, probably maybe even longer, mm-hmm. and this system of mopping mm-hmm. that everyone has accepted. <laughs> I mean, we're talking the world over, well, millions yeah. of people. Mm-hmm. You are saying that it is wrong and the, a much better way is to just slosh loads of water <laughs> all over the floor. That is essentially what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. How many people do you think will go, yeah, he's damn right. I'm going to do that now. Well, they should give it a try. Let me ask you this. 
What's your worst domestic chore, which is the one that really makes you want to give up? Oh. You just feel like this is not yeah. a good way to spend my life. The toilet is a bit grim. <laughs> doing the toilets. <laughs> Do you like doing the toilets? I don't mind. I've oh. always been quite gung-ho about toilets. Oh. What, even. Do you put your gloves on and everything? Not as often as I should, probably. You're going to tell me your system for cleaning the toilets. And it's going to be <laughs> terrible, isn't it? <laughs> no, I don't have an eccentric system for, using, for cleaning the toilet, I don't think. I was going to say, though, that I will occasionally feel compelled to clean up a public toilet. This cannot be true. Are you joking? And I know that I'm not the only person that does this. What do you mean? I think it's a mental hang-up. So will you carry stuff around with you? No, I'll just improvise with what's there. Well, there isn't going to be anything there. There's toilet paper. You will put your hand into the... Somebody else's... This is... I cannot believe what I'm hearing. A stranger's... Look, I'm not going in and grabbing it. Why don't you just go to a different toilet? Because it stresses me out. That someone else will see it? I guess that maybe that's part of it, that I'll come out and then the next person who goes in will just think I'm a piggy. It's very thoughtful of you. Well, it's half thoughtful and half obsessive. Is this part of... Do you think living in the country has made you... I, I mean, don't, I just... Have you got a small holding? Do you deal with animals? Have I got a small hole? A small holding. Like, have you got... An, like, I don't know. It seems... I think maybe if you're around a lot of stuff like that, maybe it's easier. My Mickey Mouse psychological analysis would be that it's a form of control or something, or it's, it's just a, it's a hang-up. It's like putting back into the community isn't it but it's just quite an eccentric way of doing it cleaning a stranger's feces in the toilet <laughs> well someone's like, got to do it it's That's... like beach cleaning up beaches isn't it yeah it's that yeah, sort of yeah. thing maybe you could arrange like little groups of you to go around i feel as if i could be a cleaner i think so too. well not floors <laughs> but toilets so anyway these are the kinds of things that are stressing out Linda, in The Change. They're, they're not stressing her out, but she's just she just wants to mix things up a little she bit. She wants a change. She wants a change. Because of the change. Yeah. Um, she needs a change. Yeah. She's realised that she doesn't know who she is anymore. You know, no one's interested in what she's up to or how she is or what she's doing. And she isn't either. You know, she's lost sight of who Linda is and what she's going to do with the rest of her life. So it's a sense of purpose, I think, that she's um, looking for. And she doesn't have that in her current situation. You know, that's another thing about the menopause. I did really want it to be like a positive experience as well, because I don't want young women to think to dread this thing that's coming and to think that it's all awful, because for a lot of women, it really isn't. And it hasn't been for me personally. I'm feeling really good at the moment. And that's a combination of things, you know, like work finally sort of coming together and the kids are a bit older and, Mm. you know, getting my health sorted out and, you know, and looking forward to what's next. You know, I don't know if I would... It's it's tricky, isn't it? Because I wonder how I would feel if I hadn't had children because obviously that's all stopped now. I haven't had a period for at least a year So I'm out the other side of that. Mm. But I've got two beautiful children and I don't know how I'd feel if I didn't. 
I don't know if I think, right, so I've gone through all of this puberty and the menopause. Like, why did I have to go through that? You know? Mm-hmm. Did you always know that you wanted to have children? No. It wasn't part of my big plan. Um, if someone had asked you when you were 12 or something, what would you have said? Are I would you have said have... I'm way too young to have children with you. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I, we were talking, I'm calling the police. <laughs> we were talking to our children about it the other day. Yeah. And all of them just said, no way. No way. No way. A, physically, my God, just absolutely no. And also, I think that I just wasn't mature enough before. You know, I had Luke at 35, 30, 35, 36. And I just don't think I was mature enough. And also, you know, I hadn't met anyone that I wanted to have children with. Sorry to all my exes. You know, it just the timing wasn't right. Yeah. I wasn't in the right place, you know. So no, I was never, I was never definitely when I was young, I would not have wanted. It just seems so incredibly intimidating Yeah. to be responsible for, well, being pregnant, giving birth and then being responsible. It's like mind-blowingly mad concept when you're young to most people, I think. Yeah. I remember when I was pregnant with my first child and my dad, who had had nine children, saying... Nothing can or will prepare you for it. Don't read any books. They won't help. Just go with your instinct. And I don't think... I don't think any parent thinks that they're the best parent in the world. I I can't... Well, actually, someone did say that to me once, and I was really taken aback by it. It was That they were or that you were? That they were. (laughs) Because I was like going, oh, my God. You know, I I was being very self-deprecating about myself and mm-hmm. parenting and all of that because it's a universal law isn't it we you say to other parents come on blimey you know half term's nearly over and all of that business and um <laughs> I remember her saying I think I'm a really amazing parent wow and I, I think I laughed because I thought she was joking but actually she wasn't and that really I was really taken aback by that because I thought that I thought that we all thought that we were winging it yeah yeah you yeah know? And um, but it is hard. It doesn't get easier either. No, no, that's the, the thing. Just that the worries change. Exactly. Like when they're little, it's are they safe? Are they going to like run into the road? Are they eating properly and all of that? And then as they get older, it's, you know, are they happy? Who are they hanging out with? Where are they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, where, where are they? You know, are they, are they going to be in relationships with people who hurt them? And then when they're older, it's going to change again. We'll worry about... Have they got enough money? Like, what are they... Yeah, it's just... It doesn't end, really. I know. It never really goes away. And I feel as if part of the stage we're at now is coming to terms with that and moving beyond it and sort of accepting that. You get periods where it's less worrying and where everything's kind of working, but you know that at some point there's going to be another bigger problem that's even more insurmountable. This is the thing, right, is that... You know, my mum always used to say, you don't own your children, you just borrow them and then you have to let them go at at a certain age. And they're kind of nothing to do with us in a way. Mm -hmm. Like, they're individual human beings with their own minds. And, like, my kids were born the way that they were. Like, they were literally born the way that they are now. Mm. They're exactly the same as they were when they were little. I know what you mean. They haven't changed at all. And I don't think that we can have any control over that. And I also don't think that... If one turns out really great and is no trouble, I I don't know how much credit we can take for that. And I don't know how much blame we can take 
equally for ones that turn out to be more rebellious because it's not always necessarily anything to do with us. And I know that we like to blame ourselves for things, but actually I'm not sure that we should because we can have siblings and children that are complete opposites. How does that How does that happen? Mm. So then it can't be a parenting thing. Or at least not exclusively a parenting thing. I mean, evidently, the way you're brought up does have an impact on how you end up. And you live your life. And parents, to a degree, have to take responsibility for certain choices they make. And obviously, if you are a terrible parent, if you're abusive, neglectful or whatever, or you just don't love them, that's that's different. That's different. You should hoover up the responsibility for that if your children... But if we take abusive parenting out of the discussion, then I think you do have to let certain things go. And I, I think... I don't know. I mean, what happens when your children have completely different politics to you or... Or if they live in a way that is shocking and disappointing to you, what do you do? You have to love them the same, right? Yeah. In the show, in the change. Yeah, the kids, she leaves them. She goes away. She texts them, though. She maintains contact. And that's kind of an important part. Really important. Of Linda's character is that she is in touch. She's thinking about them. And that sort of makes you more sympathetic. Because it would feel... It would feel kind of cold her just totally running away even though you make the point in the show and it's totally rings totally true that it's so standard for a man just to pick up and bugger off just to take off and totally on his own terms no warning whatsoever climb up a mountain ride around america yeah you know do whatever do whatever the fuck (laughs) you know (laughs) it's just not it's just not seen in the same way at all yeah. And then to have no contact with his family, to go off grid, you know, I think we're judged very differently. But no, it was really important that this was not a show about a relationship, about a marriage breakdown, about a mother and her children. It is about a human's search for themselves. It is a love story, but it's a love story about one person's love for themselves, you know, and finding that and reconnecting with that person who who they used to be or who she wants to be. But it was really important that Linda and Steve didn't break up, that there was no problem with her and the children, that she wasn't ill. I just thought that she's got a right to take a little bit of time. We're only talking a month or so, you mm. know. It's, it's just, <laughs> there's a really nice dog over there on that. <laughs> There's a really nice dog on a balcony. Sorry, but your face is lovely, Adam, but there's a dog outside. No, that's so, fair uh, enough. I can't <laughs> compete with that. We, yeah, there's a nice cat out there as well that I watch sometimes. <laughs> Behind me. Um, um, yeah, so that yeah. was, you know. Do you like acting? Love it. Love it. Bloody love it. I, yeah, I, it's, I wasn't joking. I have been auditioning for years and not getting anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's so weird, you know. You need to keep going. That's the message here, yeah. Adam, is don't ever give up. All right. Because sometimes your dreams come true. I mean, this is my first commission and yeah. I was 50. Right. So I hope that younger writers don't, you know, it's easy to think, isn't it, when you're much younger that nothing's, you want everything to happen straight away and it just doesn't. Mm. I mean, it does sometimes, but. You've just got to keep plugging away. You've got to keep plugging away. I loved your radio show, Mortal. <gasps> Did you? I thought it was one of the best things I'd heard for years. Oh, my goodness. Adam. Are you going to do more of those? 
we were going to, and then, because I've been writing the TV show, that show, Mortal, well, this sounds really arrogant, but we worked so hard on it, and I'm really proud of it, because I really wanted to talk about death and mortality, and um, I was really grateful that my sister and my friends talked to me about how they felt, and my sister especially was really open and honest with me, and I'm really grateful to her for that. But um, we, we worked really, really hard on it, you know, and I just recorded it at home on a little little microphone, and I was so happy that people responded well to that. So describe it for someone who hasn't heard it. Mortal is um, a four-part radio series about the cycle of life. So it was birth, life, death, and the afterlife. And it was talking about... I've been wanting to talk about death for a long time, but I wanted to make it really funny and I wanted it to be kind of comforting and meaningful as well. But I also wanted it to be absurd because I feel like life and death is absurd and I think that we don't talk about it enough. I loved it. It's just my favourite kind of thing, a sort of stream of consciousness but it's also got lovely little verite moments when you're on the phone I assume those moments when you're on the phone to your friends and family were not scripted I didn't tell them that I was recording them so I spoke to them all on the phone previously like say a couple of months beforehand and asked them if it would be okay if I recorded them at some point Uh uh-huh but I never told them when that was That's great. So the ones that ended up in the show, they weren't sure that they were being recorded even then, were they? Well, with my dad, I asked him and he had said, that's okay." But then he said, no, he didn't want to be. But I recorded him anyway, because I thought that he wouldn't mind when it went out. (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, and then I got really told off when I went home. (laughs) Because his neighbour had said, I heard you on the radio. And he was like, what? <laughs> it when, worked it worked very well. Because people speak in a different way if they yeah. know that they're being recorded. Yeah. You know? It was great. It all fitted together so nice. It was my favourite kind of thing to listen to. Thank you so oh, much. Brilliant. I'm, I'm delighted that you, you like that show. Yeah, thank you. I loved it. Do um, more. I will do more. Yes, when, please. Yeah. Oh if they if they'll have me back. There's a stock photo of you that is used for the Red Women of the Year Awards at the Royal Festival Hall. Really? And it says... Uh, a stock tw- It says, 18th of October, 2016. 2016. Bridget Christie at the Red Women of the Year Awards at the Royal Festival Hall. And it's not you. <laughs> oh, uh, how brilliant. Red Women of the Year Awards. Do you remember going to that? Yes. And it isn't me. Let's I don't think that she looks like me at all. Do you? <laughs> no. Who is that? Do you recognise them? No. No, it's not Bridget Christie. They need to... So who, would, who do I need to get in touch with? Hang on. It says buy now. Does some, can somebody buy that photo? Yeah, it's a stock photo. So this, this is the thing. It's like if someone wants a, a photo of you to illustrate an article or something... They go to this company. How long has that company. been there for? That doesn't look like me. I know. At all. Right, who do I get in touch with? The Red Women of the Year Awards? Age photo stock. 
Well, that's outrageous. I'll send you the link. Well, you know that someone thought I was Charles II. You know that story? No. (laughs) I used to do a character of Charles II for my Edinburgh shows. I did two Edinburgh shows where I pretended to be Charles II. You've got a bit of Charles II. I have, right? But when he was young, not when he was 55. Sure. And then Izzy Sooty... Right, fast forward about five or six years. Izzy Sooty, who's a friend of mine, texted me and said, quickly, look up the Daily Mail's website before they realise what they've done and look up a house for sale called Malmesbury House or something. So I did, and there was my Edinburgh poster of me superimposed onto a horse, but it was a photograph of me, and the caption was, Charles II fighting the parliamentarians during the Battle of Worcester. (laughs) So they thought that that was a painting... And they'd used a photo of me. And it was one of the best things that's ever happened to me. So they'd obviously just Googled Charles II and picked the first picture that came up and not seen that it was a photograph of a woman with, like, a drawn-on moustache. <laughs> I, had, I had a whole ten minutes about it, Adam. This is an advert for Squarespace. I took one look at that website and I knew that the woman I have been living with is not my wife. I'd never been any good with computers, so when I showed the website that I had built to sell my paintings to Tom, he just refused to believe that I had made it. And he started telling people that the government had taken his wife and replaced her with an AI. But Debbie had made the website herself. After hearing an advert on a podcast, she had visited squarespace.com slash Buxton and done a free trial. They had all these professional-looking templates there, so I chose one I liked, and I started typing into it. And then I dragged in some pictures, I uploaded a video, before I knew it, I had a website. I've seen The Matrix. I know that you need big green numbers and a long leather coat to build a website. It's just not that easy. But it was that easy. And when Debbie decided she wanted to purchase her new website, she remembered the offer code from the podcast. I typed in Buxton. And I saved 10%. I was jumping up and down and shouting in your face at Tom. And it was around then that he started with the conspiracy theory. Why don't you go to squarespace.com slash Buxton, Tom? And you could see how easy it is to build your own website. Because that's exactly what they want me to do. Continue. Oh, where are you going? He's gone into the cupboard. Hey, welcome back, podcats. That was Bridget Christie. Good fun to talk to Bridget. Always lovely to see her. There's a link in the description of today's podcast to her website where you'll find her tour dates for the rest of this year. Really recommend that if she's coming through your town. It's a good, uplifting night out. And who doesn't need one of those? Eh? Other links in the description of today's podcast. You've got a link to the webpage for The Change, Bridget's comedy drama series, which was broadcast on Sky. There is a link to Bridget's radio series, Mortal, that I was raving about there. There is a link to that incorrect stock photo of Not Bridget. There's a link to that video of Storm Babette making a forest floor flap in Scotland. Also in the links this week, a rare gift from my YouTube sidebar that popped up this week and that I clicked on. And for a change, it was something that really cheered me up. 
rather than confused and depressed me. It is a clip of the Nina Hagen band. Nina Hagen, German singer, who I suppose was part of the punk movement, kind of. She hung out with Ari Up from the Slits towards the end of the 70s and got into the whole punk scene, but it's almost quite proggy, some of her original stuff. This clip is of a track from her first album, and it's one of the singles from that album called Naturtrainer, which I think means natural tear. And she was performing with the band in Dortmund in December 1978 as part of the promotion for that debut album that came out the same year. And that gig was broadcast live by the German music TV show Rockpalast. And it is one of the best performances I've seen in a long time. For a start, I mean, I don't really know anything about Nina Hagen other than she's... uh, you know, very over the top in her delivery. I think she's a kind of opera singer, or at least she has a very operatic voice. It's that kind of slightly German cabaret type thing that sometimes I quite like, but other times I just think, oh no, I'm too tired. But this is great. I mean, look. Look, it's not going to be to everyone's taste. (laughs) It's extreme but it's very entertaining and she is extraordinary as a performer. Her face, super animated. She looks amazing. 1978, she's got this heavy black eyeliner that makes her big eyes pop. She's got cool sort of dyed black hair. She looks quite modern. It's quite a modern look that she anticipated. But she is exploring every single place that the human voice can go. Soaring, swooping, yelping, burping, coughing, making chicken noises, while also kind of keeping the... the, It's not a comedy song. It's quite a cool sort of song with this descending chord sequence played by these groovy-looking German guys with moustaches and dungarees. Rosie, come on, let's go this way. But yeah, she is not holding back. It's good stuff. Made me feel happy. Nina Hagen, by the way, is still with us. And uh, she is still making music. She put out an album last year, in fact, called Utopia. Her voice is quite different. I listened to a couple of tracks. Sounds like she has smoked all the ciggies and drunk all the whiskey. But she is still plodding on. Long may she continue. Right, come on, dog legs. Let's head back to the castle. Thank you very much to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his production support and conversation editing on this episode. Much appreciated, Seamus. Thanks to Helen Green. She does the artwork for the podcast. Thanks to everybody at Acast for liaising with my sponsors and keeping the show on the road. I appreciate it. But thanks most especially to you. I hope you're doing all right. Stressful times, though, isn't it? Like, especially, what we sort of me and Bridget were talking a little bit about. This time of life, not suggesting, it's just people in their 50s that have a monopoly on stress. I remember it being stressful to be young, and I'm sure it's even more stressful in 2023. Luckily, I think stress stops 
I think once you're over 60, apparently. It's quite good, something to look forward to. But yeah, this time of life, when people are getting ill and parents are dying, a couple of close friends lost parents this week. And children are growing up and presenting you with their own problems, as Bridget and I were talking about. Plus all the routine stresses of just being alive and whatever else is going on in the outside world. It's unrelaxing. And that's why I'm going to give you a hug. Anina Hagen. I'm here. Hey. Good to see you. You do smell nice. Until next time, we share the same outer space. Go easy. Keep it together. I love you. Bye!